Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Your new favorite podcast, Journeys into Whiteness. I'm your host, as always, Jimmy Lincoln. This is episode seven. If you're a repeat listener, thank you once more. Thank you once again. Thank you for your continued support. If you're a new listener, thank you for checking us out. Now, today's episode. Oh, I'm so nervous about today's episode and episode eight, because what we're going to talk about today is easily going to stretch into two episodes. And as much as I'm nervous about this and these two episodes, I'm also excited because we're not chipping away at the edges today. Episode seven and eight are not going to deal with little comments that perhaps I have misinterpreted. Episode seven and eight are not going to deal with tiny little details of white supremacy and tiny little instances of how whiteness is passed on from one generation to the next without anyone ever acknowledging it. I realize that many of my stories up to this point have focused on small moments. And many of my stories beyond episodes seven and eight are going to focus on small moments. And there's nothing wrong with that because whiteness and the edifice of white supremacy is built by millions of these small moments. These small moments becoming bricks in this giant edifice that that surrounds us all, yet white people often fail to acknowledge. But episode seven and eight, we're not talking about tiny bricks. No, sir. We are talking about foundational pieces, cornerstone pieces. Talking about home runs. We're not talking about bunts and singles. We are talking, in other words, about obvious examples of how white supremacy and a glorification of whiteness is perpetuated from one generation to the next. We're talking about textbooks and we're talking about what students in the state of Virginia learned about black people and about white people and about indigenous people and about women. Though we're going to focus for the sake of brevity on the messages that Virginians were taught about race and about black people and about whiteness and about white supremacy for the better part of two decades, and in some cases, even longer. We're going to look at the fourth grade Virginia history textbook entitled, simply enough, Virginia's History, that was used in my state from 1957, and not just in my state, let me correct myself, used throughout my state 
from 1957 into the mid 70s and and in some cases up into the 80s in some school systems in Virginia. So from 57 until about 75, it was used across the state, every single school system. And then some individual school systems into the 80s continued to use it. And I have still heard stories in 2020, and this scares the shit out of me. I've still heard stories of teachers that continue to use it as a supplementary text. And you'll understand why this scares the shit out of me. When we start digging into what this textbook said. Now, this fourth grade textbook was commissioned, authored, and published under the auspices of the state of Virginia, Virginia's General Assembly, and it was created at the same time that a seventh grade textbook was created for students in Virginia's junior highs and then later middle schools to learn about Virginia and a bit of American history, and then an 11th grade textbook. So we can look at this fourth grade, seventh grade, and 11th grade textbooks. We can look at them as companion pieces to each other. And although I don't have actual copies of the seventh and 11th grade textbooks in front of me, I've read excerpts, I've read about them, and I think the chief differences in these textbooks are not thematic, but rather in the amount of details that are provided, the amount of complexity that might be provided. But we're gonna focus on the fourth grade textbook today. And like I said, and I'll give you the, a more official kind of description of these books. State officials and legislators oversaw the writing of the books in the 1950s when Virginia's political landscape was dominated by the segregationist Byrd organization, the Democratic power structure named for then U.S. Senator Harry F. Byrd Sr. If you're a Virginian, there's a good chance you know that name. If you're not, then I encourage you to look that name up. And that description I just read from a Richmond Times article, April 2018 article in the Richmond Times Dispatch, is a very accurate description of Harry Byrd and his legacy, an extremely pro-segregationist politician who, whether it was in state politics in Virginia, regional politics in the South, or national politics, did everything he could to resist the civil rights movement in general and in its specific instances, whether we're talking about integration or voting rights for African-American or an end to racial discrimination in employment and residential practices, etc. So that's the background of these three textbooks, a fourth grade textbook, a seventh grade textbook and an 11th grade textbook. And we're going to dive into this fourth grade textbook entitled Virginia's History. And there are three reasons we're going to dive into this textbook. First of all, I have a copy of it. I have a hard copy sitting right next to me at the moment. 
marked up with post-it notes and tabs as if I was back in graduate school. And so we have a tangible artifact of how history was taught to Virginia students in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and in some case, 80s. Okay, great. What does that even matter? Well, here's the second reason we're talking about this fourth grade textbook. It matters because I'm hoping to use this textbook as a means to helping myself, helping my listeners understand why it seems like in 2020, different groups of Americans, when we discuss civil rights and when we discuss the movement for black lives and when we discuss this reckoning that America still hasn't fully achieved, this reckoning with our racist past and our current racist present, and this reckoning with the, the deep legacy and deep roots of white supremacy that exist in all areas of our society, it seems like to me at times that different groups of Americans are speaking different languages. That when I talk about the monuments being taken down in Richmond, to some people, it's a long, long overdue symbolic act that the state of Virginia is doing by removing these monuments. And when I stood on a rainy day early in July and watched Cranes remove Stonewall Jackson from his pedestal, and you saw the joy in people's faces and you heard the crowd cheering. It was clear that that group of people had a different understanding of these monuments than other groups of people who decry this as the worst examples of cancel culture. And that if Virginia and other parts of the South and other parts of the United States remove these monuments, then we're erasing our history and we're dishonoring not only the past, but these great men from the past. And it's not just monuments when it seems like we have different groups of Americans speaking different languages. Whether it's the discussion about reparations, which scares the shit out of white people, at least in my experience. They don't want to even touch that shit. Whether it's that discussion, or whether it's this, the discussion about why poverty, why black poverty is concentrated, whereas white poverty is more widely dispersed. Or whether it's a discussion about residential segregation and how it relates to redlining and white flight. Whether it's a discussion about the current wealth gap that exists between white and black families. Any of these discussions that exist, these necessary discussions and the solutions to these issues that I just mentioned, these issues that are directly caused, intentionally caused by white supremacy, any of these discussions at least currently in the summer of 2020, will still lead 
to some groups of Americans looking at you like you are crazy if you bring up reparations. Like you are insane if you bring up systemic racism. Like you are out of your mind if you suggest that in some ways the Civil War is still with us and that in many ways the Jim Crow era, the era of segregation is still with us. You say that to the wrong group of white people and not only will they look at you like you're fucking crazy, but then they'll get angry as shit, right? And so I'm hoping that by discussing this fourth grade history textbook, it'll better help me understand the language that these people are using and help build some empathy within me. Not necessarily sympathy, but I need to better understand these people. These people who, in my experience, are so adamantly opposed to having honest conversations about race in our country. I need to know where they're coming from. Because my knee-jerk reaction, and I'm sure many of my progressive listeners can recognize this. Shit, I'm sure even my conservative listeners, if I have any, I think I have at least one. Somebody out there gave me a one star and, and a rating a few weeks back. Shout out. Just keep listening. I don't care. Rate it how you want. Just keep listening. Keep tuning in. But my initial knee-jerk reaction to those Americans who don't want to have discussions about white supremacy and systemic racism and, more importantly, solutions to systemic racism and ways that America can finally begin to deconstruct the edifice of whiteness that exists and permeates so many areas of our culture and our politics and our economy. The knee-jerk reaction I have is, fuck these ignorant people. It's a very emotional reaction. And then I take that emotion and I double down on it. And I think to myself, or I maybe say out loud, that they're just ignorant. And selfish. And racist. And that all might be true. But that extreme emotional reaction on my part is not really that beneficial when it comes time to convincing them that we need to make changes in this country. And at the end of the day, that's ultimately what I hope to do. I hope to convince these people, whether they're my age, whether they're my mother's age, or whether they're younger, that reparations are necessary. And that a whole vast series of legislation is necessary to address white supremacy in our country. I need to convince these people. And so I need to understand them. And this fourth grade textbook, I hope, is going to help me understand them. Because it's going to give me some insight into how they understand the past. And therefore, how they see themselves in the present. So those are the, I told y'all there were three reasons we're talking about this textbook. Specifically, this fourth grade textbook that was used throughout across the state of Virginia for the better part of 20 years. And I said one reason was I had a hard copy next to me. The second reason was 
that was going to provide me a lot of useful insights into the way many people in my state and across this country think today. The third reason we're going to talk about this textbook, Virginia's History, is because the primary author of this textbook was my grandfather. And it's for that third reason that I'm just a bit nervous. And I'll talk more about it in episode eight, what exactly my relationship was with my grandfather and how my grandfather is viewed by not only me and my brothers, but by my entire nuclear and extended family. Because I'm coming for his book. His book is as white supremacist as you could be, just about. As racist as you could be. We're not talking about, I told y'all a few minutes ago, this book is not trees. This book, in many ways, is the fucking forest. This book is a cornerstone piece to understanding how white supremacy and systemic racism is reproduced generation after generation. And yet the man who wrote it, in my estimation, in my memory, side note, he's, he passed in the, the early 90s, for anyone who might be wondering. The man who wrote this vile piece of history, I have nothing but positive memories of. And I guarantee you, if you're hanging out with me or anyone in my extended family at a Thanksgiving or a Christmas or some other random event where we're gathered, you'll never hear even a neutral word spoken about this man. And so, episode eight, after I'm done tearing this book apart, I'm going to try to walk y'all through all of my emotional reactions. to simultaneously loving someone and hating this weapon that they created. Because that's what this textbook is. It's a weapon of white supremacy. I can dress it up with all kinds of euphemism. And I guess in some ways, weapon is a metaphor. I get it. But it's not a euphemism. This is a weapon. This book did damage. This book does damage. Because there are still millions of Americans, hundreds of thousands of Virginians, who still live their lives and who still identify themselves and their communities based on what this book taught them. So that third reason is going to be the focus of our next episode, me kind of personally figuring out what the fuck to do with my feelings about my grandfather and what it means, what all this means. But we're going to start with his book. And we're going to start by looking at it in detail to see exactly what it has to say. And maybe more importantly, what it doesn't have to say about white people 
about black people, about race, racism, white supremacy, segregation, the Civil War. We're going to look at all that. And we're going to talk about the images in the book. Because it's a cliche, but I think there is a lot of truth to the statement that a picture is worth a thousand words. And there are 152 beautiful hand-drawn pictures in this book. They are. They're really a sight to see. And we're going to talk about what those images do and do not say about white people, black people, and systems of white supremacy. Thomas, I'm not going to nerd out on y'all. Not too much anyway. But I really do think if there are any two episodes of this podcast that are essential, I think it's this episode and the next. Breaking down this, this language that to me is foreign. And I think to many of us, quote unquote, progressives or many of us who, who think of ourselves as woke, And to many black people, if not all black people, this language of our of those who disagree with us is so foreign that it can be hard to wrap our minds around this shit. That it can be hard for us to understand why the fuck slavery is celebrated and why the fuck we celebrate people who own slaves. And why we celebrate the Confederate flag or even accept this existence and why we can't recognize the legacy of white supremacy and how it manifests itself presently. So I'm hoping that by breaking down this book at a, at a granular level, will help us better understand this language that all too often feels foreign to us. So let's jump right in. Virginia's history. So we're going to start by talking about how this book describes black people in Virginia and America's history. Then we'll talk about how they maybe aren't described. Then we'll get into images periodization, and lastly, dip into a little bit of how various white people are described, because all of this is going to help us better understand the language of those who so often seem unable to recognize systemic racism as it exists in our country. All right, first thing I got to talk about on page 42 and 43 of this book. John Rolfe is introduced. Most, many of you, maybe most, may know of John Rolfe. He married Pocahontas. They weren't married very long. She died soon after going to England with him. But that's kind of the side note to John Rolfe. John Rolfe is most known for introducing a strain of tobacco to Virginia that grew well in Virginia soil and would quickly lead the colony of Virginia in the 17th, 18th, and even into the 19th and 20th centuries when it stopped being a colony, obviously, and became a state. 
when it quickly led Virginia to becoming an economic powerhouse. So on page 42 and 43 of my grandfather's book, John Rolfe, the tobacco savant, is introduced. And it talks about everything I just mentioned, at least as it specifically relates to Rolfe and how he figured out how to plant tobacco. I think it was a Spanish strain of tobacco that he could then sell in England and how many other planters in Virginia followed suit. The problem is, on page 42 and 43, and this pattern is continued throughout the book, but it's important, that nowhere does my grandfather make explicit the connection between tobacco and slavery in Virginia. And so from Jump Street, we're talking about plantations with the refusal to acknowledge the people whose labor, whose forced labor, whose unpaid labor, whose violently supervised labor made growing that tobacco possible. Now, just to be clear, John Rawls died in 1622, very soon after enslaved people were introduced to Virginia. So I'm not interested in whether or not John Rolfe himself owned slaves. What I'm interested in is that it's extremely important and extremely historically accurate that any history book about Virginia's past, especially as it ties to tobacco and tobacco plantations, had better not dodge the central fact that the majority of the workers on these plantations especially by the time you get to the late 1600s, the majority of the workers on these plantations were enslaved people of African descent. Yes, there were some indentured servants, which those aren't even mentioned on those John Rolfe pages. And they deserve to be mentioned as well. And they do get mentioned later in the textbook. But it just seems quite problematic to me to talk about tobacco and tobacco in Virginia and John Rolfe and not talk about the people who literally labored on those tobacco plantations. So that's the first problem I have with how slavery is talked about in my grandfather's fourth grade history book. Okay, fine. Maybe it's just an organizational issue you might be thinking, correct? Maybe the problem is that he's going to really dig into slavery later in the book. Spoiler alert, he's not. But slavery does finally get mentioned in his textbook on page 55. And my grandfather talks about the year that enslaved people are for forced, first forced, into enslavement in the British colonies, specifically in Virginia. It happened in 1619. Now, for my listeners out there who aren't history nerds, first of all, God bless you. 1619 is a crucial year. In colonial history, in Virginia's history, in America's history. 
It was the first time Virginia's House of Burgesses, a so-called representative assembly, met to make laws for the colonies or for the colony of Virginia. So it's the beginning of organized so-called representative democracy in Virginia. And I keep saying so-called because the people who were allowed to vote and the people who were allowed to represent Virginia's colonists were white property-owning males. And so you can decide for yourself how representative that is. But it's needless to say, it's a key moment in the development of government in Virginia and therefore in what would later become the United States. 1619. Remember, Jamestown was 1607. So the people of British descent had only permanently been in the New World for 12 years. 1619, a big deal. The other major event that happens in the British colonies in 1619 and happens in Virginia in 1619 is that slaves are first introduced. Let me back up. Slaves of African descent are first introduced to Virginia's colonies. To British colonies in Virginia. The Mayflower wasn't until 1620. So think about that. Slavery is older than Thanksgiving, older than Squanto, older than the Mayflower. Even today in 2020, if you were to go through Virginia's elementary schools, I guarantee you that message is not clearly conveyed. Kids have been, and we can talk about how problematic Thanksgiving is in a future episode, but kids have been dressing up like pilgrims and Native Americans for more than a century now, celebrating this uniquely American holiday without any real acknowledgement that the Mayflower didn't even show up in Massachusetts or what would become Massachusetts until after enslaved people from Africa were introduced to Virginia. To me, that's critical. It's super critical because it acknowledges, it's proof that you can't talk about America, that you can't talk about the United States without talking about people of African descent. Because other than that brief 12-year period, which literally maybe a thousand people of English descent or British descent, because maybe there were some Irish and Scots-Irish, other than those thousand people who made it to Virginia between 1607 and 1619, black folks have been in what would become the United States from day one. And in fact, if you want to get technical, there were enslaved people of African descent in Spanish colony of Florida or Spanish colonies in Florida going back to the 1500s. So in fact, if we really, really want to get technical, Black people predate English people in terms of the land that would one day become the United States. And that's important. Because too often, even in 2020, black people are spoken of as if they are a sidebar, an addendum, an appendage to American history. And Forget about all the contributions to science and math and culture and politics 
architecture, geometry, geography. Forget about those contributions, which are real. Let's just talk about simple presence, simple existence. Black people been here from day one. So 1619 matters. Let's see what my grandfather has to say about 1619 in Virginia. So the chapter starts and he mentions the House of Burgesses stuff that we talked about. And then he writes five sentences about the beginning of slavery in the British colonies, or to be accurate, the beginning of the enslavement of people of African descent. Because there was some enslavement of indigenous people prior to 1619. Here's what he says. A second important thing happened when the first... I paused because I forgot there was a word that my grandfather uses over and over in his textbook that I'm going to use, and it's not the N-word. Calm down. It's not that N-word. But it's another N-word that I'm going to read. Not just because it's in the textbook, but because I'm worried if I just replace it with N-word, then I'm going to confuse y'all and you're going to be thinking about the worst N-word. The worst N-word. That's a word I would never read or say, even as a teacher, when it shows up in documents and stuff that we read in my history classes. My students don't need to hear me repeating that word. They can see it right in front of them. They can read it for themselves. But this N-word, which a lot of my older listeners are going to be very familiar with, it's still pretty offensive today, but it's how my grandfather refers to black people throughout his textbook, which makes sense if you're thinking about when this textbook was published, which was 1956. So sorry for that little tangent. I know y'all are used to them by now. My tongue works a lot faster than my brain, but that word, I saw it on the paper and I was like, ooh, I better talk about it. So here's what my grandfather says about 1619 and the first appearance of enslaved persons of African descent in the British colony of Virginia. I quote, a second important thing happened when the first Negroes were brought to Virginia from Africa. There were about 20 of these Negroes. They were sold as servants to some of the planters. Soon other Negroes were brought to Virginia. They helped the planters do the work on their plantations. That's it. That's what he says. And he doesn't talk about slavery for another 30 or so pages. Now, we know the number of people that were brought. One of the primary sources that gives us some indication of how many enslaved people showed up in Virginia. And we think it wasn't actually in Jamestown. It was probably somewhere in the Hampton area a little upriver, up the James River, because John Rolfe himself wrote in a diary about 20 or so people showing up and how they apparently were, were purchased with food. So that was the, the medium of exchange. Victuals, I think, is what he says in his diary. Such a great freaking history word, victuals. So 20 enslaved people of African descent show up in Virginia in 1619. Notice how my grandfather writes about them, because language matters. Language shapes how we think, and, it shaped, and our thoughts shape how we act. So language matters. So he mentions 
in the first sentence that these enslaved people are brought to Virginia. He doesn't ever actually use the word slave. So that's a key right there. Slave is not even used. And he says they were brought, but he doesn't mention anything about the Middle Passage. That's a pattern repeated throughout this book. The Middle Passage is never mentioned. One of the single most horrific series of events, because obviously there were thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, thousands of trips collectively that make up the Middle Passage. He never even mentioned. So right there, he's taking out one of the key parts of the trauma of slavery. The physical, psychological, spiritual, emotional removal of people from various African countries spirited across the Atlantic Ocean in horrendous conditions and then sold in the New World. Middle Passage is never mentioned. Then he uses the word servants. And you're going to see that pattern throughout this book. Slave is barely mentioned, I think two or three times. Servant is mentioned quite often. Now, there might be a nerd out there who's saying, well, in many of the primary documents from the 1600s, that's actually how Virginians did refer to these people. And by these people, I mean enslaved Africans or enslaved people of African descent. And that's correct. Some of the census documents, sometimes when we look at diaries and other other written documents, those people who are enslaved are referred to as servants. Great. They weren't servants, however. They were slaves. So just because people in the 17th century didn't refer to them as slaves didn't change the reality of their enslavement. So that's another thing. Servants is used instead of slaves. Then the second to last sentence, soon others were brought to Virginia. Others. No indication of any real quantity right there. A better sentence would have been eventually hundreds of thousands of enslaved people of African descent made their way to the British colonies. So that by the eve of the Civil War, I believe there are somewhere around 5 million enslaved people in, in the United States. Because that matters. Others could be like four. And then this last sentence is to me the most problematic, the most frustrating. They helped the planters do the work on their plantations. It almost implies that they volunteered. They helped. Yo, dog, you need me to help you out this weekend? Heard you raising some tobacco. They helped. Not they were required to. Not that they were forced. Not that they were treated akin to animals. But that they helped the planters. It also implies that these planters are doing a lot of hard labor themselves. And while that may have been true early in Virginia's history, early in the 1600s, like I'm pretty sure John Rolfe broke, broke a sweat. I'm pretty sure early planners broke a sweat. That soon disappears. By the 1700s, 
Ain't no landowner owning enslaved people and working next to them. That's just rare. But that sentence implies that you just got a, you know, a few servants from Africa helping out the planters. That's some powerful language, especially when we take into account that these enslaved people aren't mentioned again for another 30 pages. Because I'll admit that slavery before the 1670s or 80s, not just in Virginia, but in other colonies, as a system, slavery was still in its infancy and the legal and personal rights of those who were enslaved were still being developed, and even race is still being developed at this point. Race is a pretty solidly developed legal and social construct by the 1700s, but in the 1600s, these white folks who were running shit are still figuring it all out. So it would be one thing if that sentence existed alongside of hundreds of other sentences that describe the development of slavery and racism in Virginia throughout the 1600s. But given that that's the only sentence we even hear about enslaved people in Virginia until decades past, that's a problematic fucking sentence. The word slave is not used. The Middle Passage is not discussed. The treatment of these enslaved people is not discussed. And it's implied that they're just kind of helping out their buddies, the planners. Let's move on. Maybe it gets better, you're hoping. If you're in my family, you're definitely hoping it, right? You're like, damn, Jimmy, stop embarrassing our family. I'm not embarrassing our family, I promise you. Just being honest. So, about 30 pages later, in a chapter entitled Life in Early Virginia, and by early Virginia, because my grandfather mentioned this at the beginning of the chapter, He's talking right around the, the year 1680. So remember, British first make a permanent settlement in Virginia in 1607 at Jamestown. So by 1680, they've been there a few decades. Plantations have been set up. Slavery as a political, legal, economic, social system has, although it's still developing, has been constructed much more clearly by a series of laws and simply by tradition. We're beginning to see, excuse me, racialized laws develop. And so in 1680, my grandfather gives his readers a picture of this social situation. And he talks about corn and tobacco being really important products. And he goes on to describe potatoes and beans are also being grown. How many people still hunt and fish. And he's giving kind of an agricultural overview. And then he gets into slavery. Here's what he says, and I quote, People who lived on the large plantations had servants to work for them. Some of their servants were Negro slaves. 
damn, that word Negro really hurts me to say. I got to find a, a euphemism or something. Some of the servants were Negro slaves. We are on page 84. Now, mind you, this textbook is only 318 pages. So we are almost a third of the way through this textbook before the word slave even gets used. Okay, but I give him credit. At least he mentioned some. But once again, without actual numbers, he's really distorting how important slavery had become to Virginia's economy and the entire Southern economy by the 1680s. And that importance is only going to grow. But nowhere do you get that impression when you hear this, some of their servants were Negro slaves. That almost implies that the majority weren't. And he continues. And this next sentence, oh, white people love this next sentence. Even today, even today I have colleagues who this next sentence I'm about to read to y'all, they eat this shit up. In those days, people all over the world did not think it was wrong to buy and sell slaves. There had been Negroes in Virginia since 1619. As the years went by, many others were brought from Africa and sold as slaves to do the work on the plantations. So the end of that paragraph we kind of discussed already. It's very similar to how my grandfather described 1619. Many others, no real indication of how central slavery is becoming to Virginia's economy. And that's important, right? Once again, the more you read about slavery and the racist white supremacy that has developed as a result to justify this slavery in America, the more you come to understand that slavery and the wealth created by enslaved people is central to the creation of our country. It's not extra. It's not secondary or tertiary. It is primary. But you don't get any of that from, from this paragraph. But we already covered those grounds. I want to talk about this sentence. In those days, people all over the world did not think it was wrong to buy and sell slaves. Now, at first, you might be thinking, all right, sure, that's accurate. Unfortunately, slavery is very common in human history. If you're studying world history before 1800, it's difficult to find a society anywhere in the world that didn't own slaves. So on its face, yeah, that's true. The problem is, Statements like that distort what slavery was really like in the New World. They obfuscate the reality of the slave system that is being created not only in the British colonies in the New World, but in French and Spanish colonies as well. Prior to the Middle Passage, prior to the Triangle Trade Route that we all learn about, prior to the New World slavery, the New World slave system created by and for the benefit of Europeans in the 16, 17, 18, and even, you might argue, 1900s, depending on how you want to look at 
some details on the ground. Prior to that system of slavery that was created in the New World, there are very few instances, in fact, almost none, of slavery being tied to a person's race. In fact, there are plenty of historians, and I would count myself amongst them, who would argue that race doesn't really exist as a social construct until the 16 and 1700s, until the new world slave systems created by these Western European nations emerge. Now, it doesn't mean people throughout history didn't hate other people because they were other. Shit, the, great, the Greeks thought anyone who wasn't Greek was a barbarian, just about. The Romans had similar attitudes. You see those attitudes in different dynasties in China. African countries thought the same of other African countries. So this, I, I'm not trying to sell you on this notion that humans all loved each other prior to the 16 and 1700s. What I'm telling you is we don't have a lot of evidence that the hatred between humans that existed prior to the 16 and 1700s was based on race. That race was even a thing. Sure, there were black and white people and every color in between. But it didn't have a permanent fixed social meaning like it does in the new world. And so for my grandfather to say, oh, yeah, everybody all over the world thought slavery was fine. To make a statement like that and not mention how new world slavery is increasingly becoming racialized is to obscure what slavery was like in the British colonies. Not only that, but the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of societies that had slavery prior to these new world empires did not have slavery as the central part of their labor system. In other words, slavery in those societies, whether you're looking at sub-Saharan Africa, whether you're looking at Southern Asia, East Asia, whether you're looking at indigenous people in North and South America, slavery was an addendum. It was a sidebar. And in most of those systems, enslaved people had various amounts of civil and political rights. And in most of those systems, for instance, a child born to an enslaved person wasn't automatically a slave. And in most of those systems, slaves weren't automatically considered chattel or property. But in the slave systems that develop in the New World, and granted, by 1680, they're still developing, but they eventually become very solidified, very well-defined. In the slave systems that develop in the New World, not only is slavery race-based, but it's central to New World economy. And the enslaved people themselves have almost zero rights. Those are three distinct important features of slavery in the New World that you must if you are in any way desirous of teaching an accurate version of the past, you must make people aware of. If not, they're going to grow up thinking slavery is not a big deal, that slavery happened everywhere. You hear dumbass white people all the time talking about their so-called, these fictional ancestors of theirs thousands of years ago who might have been enslaved. And one of the reasons they think this is because of textbooks like my grandfather's. Note, as well, we still haven't heard any mention of the Middle Passage. 
We still haven't heard any mention of what it was actually like to be a slave, what a slave might have thought or felt. We don't even have a fucking name of a single enslaved person. And we are almost a third of the way into a history textbook about Virginia, a colony and later a state whose wealth was tied directly to slavery. Let's move on. We're going to finish off today with a paragraph at the end of this chapter. Remember the section I just read to you about slavery in Virginia in the 1680s? was part of a larger chapter about the social life of Virginia. And so once again, people of African descent, black people are given about five sentences. Slavery is talked about as being very benign. It's talked about as being very incidental almost to Virginia. There aren't any numbers. There's no description of what it's like to be a slave. And then at the end of this chapter, like any good historian, my grandfather makes sure he summarizes everything that came before in the chapter. Here's the takeaway. He wants for his readers, his fourth grade readers, the people who came and the people who were born in Virginia worked to build homes and churches and schools. All of them breathed the free air of a new world and they grew to love freedom. Now that's an inspirational coda. Shit. That is some patriotic shit right there, granddad. Makes me proud to be a Virginian. Breathed free air and grew to love their freedom. All of them. You think the enslaved people? And there would have been thousands in Virginia by 1680. Even those people breathe free air? I do think he's correct with the last phrase. They grew to love freedom. I, shit. You could make the argument nobody loves freedom more than someone who doesn't have it, a.k.a. an enslaved person. But this is a dangerous, once again, obfuscation, a dangerous clouding of the truth. There's no way anyone who's dealing in accurate versions of the past could say that in 1680 in Virginia, all of them breathed, breathed the free air of a new world. Not only does that basically erase the enslavement of thousands of people, it does the same with people who were indentured or people who didn't own land and couldn't vote for representatives in the House of Burgesses. So that's a problematic statement on many levels. But for our purposes today, just to look at race and slavery, whoo, that one. 
all of them breathe the free air of a new world. It's myth-making. But it's also giving us insight. We're only on page 90 of this fourth grade textbook. And I say only, like I mentioned earlier, that's about a third of the textbook. And already, I think my listeners can see how this textbook is foundational to notions of white supremacy and notions of how someone in 2020 could deny the existence of systemic racism in our country and who could deny the legacies of slavery in our country. What allows you to deny those legacies are textbooks like this, where slaves are are referred to as servants, where enslaved people are said implied to be free, where the middle passage is totally erased from history, where slavery is presented, the slavery in the new world, which was uniquely large in in the number of people that were enslaved, uniquely racial in nature, and uniquely central to the economies of many new world colonies and later countries, all of that is obscured. And so it's very easy to see how whether you're black or white, because we haven't even talked about it, but this textbook was also used in black elementary schools throughout the state of Virginia. It's easy to see how people who were taught with this textbook could have an idea that's very different from the idea I currently have about racism and whiteness and reparations and civil rights and all the other issues related to those concepts. I don't want to keep you all too long today. I told you we're going to come back to this textbook in episode eight. So I appreciate you, as always, following me down all of these different pathways that I'm taking, trusting that we're going to end up somewhere fruitful. You know that's my goal. And I hope you'll continue to reach out. My email address is unchanged, jameslincoln313 at gmail.com. Let me know your own experiences, your own thoughts, your own concerns. Maybe someone out here was taught using this textbook. I would love to hear from people who were exposed to this textbook as a fourth grade student in one of Virginia schools in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and maybe 80s. Continue to think for yourself. Take care of each other. Peace and love, y'all. I'm out.